we're glad you're here. My name's Mike. I want to welcome you. If you have a Bible, let's go to Song of Songs, chapter 2. Um, if you are uh, new with us, really glad you're here. Really glad that you would trust us enough to come and, uh, and listen. As always, um, you can text questions in anonymously as we go, and we will try to, to get to as many as possible. Uh, there's also space on our website for folks to share their stories. And um, I, I don't even know how to say, I don't even have words about how heavy uh, this is uh, to read uh, stories of um, people who are in the midst of such brokenness and such disappointment and such pain. And uh, a lot of people are, are sharing things that they've never told anybody. And um, one, of the, the, one of the things that we believe is that coming out of hiding is the first step. And so for those of you that stood up last week, for those that are at least willing to click send on an email or a text, thank you. Um, the amount of questions we get has been overwhelming. Uh, the one... Uh, there was one that I wanted to highlight. Mike, how did you become so good looking? And, and I didn't know my wife was watching. I, I thought that was really, really cool. Um, or my mom, I'm not sure which. Um, and, and, you know, that's a long story. I've struggled with handsomeness my whole life, and I just want to—I just want to confess that. Um, <laughs> We—we're—we're we're slowly making our way through all of the uh, very slowly, uh, and and the reason is there are so many landmines and, and so many issues, and and the song doesn't lend itself to just like a linear story. And so what we've been doing is we've, going, we've, been, we've been looking at the different issues the poem raises and then going to different parts of the scriptures to address them. And we'll do that again tonight. But the next three weeks or so are, are going to be kind of the culmination of some of the hard work we've been doing. Because to me, this is still all background stuff. Um, the next three weeks are kind of the, the point. And, um, and so hang in there. If you've texted in um, the same question every week and we haven't gotten to it, one of the things I think we'll do is just a Q&A where we'll try to get to as many of the questions as possible. Particularly, there are some things we just won't be able to address in any other way, so we'll do that. Um, and, then, and then a lot of the questions, quite honestly, that we get texted in in the stories are simply, is it possible to be redeemed? Um, uh, a young lady uh, wrote in and just said, you know, um, I'm 18, I'm watching online, and um, had sex with my boyfriend. Uh, I was a virgin before that, and he broke up with me a week later. Um, how do I not feel, if I, if I say sex is a big deal, then I feel shame and guilt like I'm damaged goods. And if I say sex isn't a big deal, then that doesn't explain the conflicting emotions that I'm feeling. So how do I work through that? And there's, there's, a, there's a great passage in the book of Joel, which you know, we're all familiar with. And um, there's this judgment of locusts 
which, you know, if you've ever been around locusts, you'll know how bad that can be. But there's this judgment of locusts, and then there's this word from God that says, God can restore what the locusts have eaten. And, and I believe that's true of sexuality. Um, there is nobody in here that's too far gone. There's nobody in here that's too damaged. There's, no, there's not a single person. I don't care what you've done. You can't surprise us, and you can't surprise him. And so all of that's coming. We're going to have a healing service one night where the whole service is just going to be um, healing. And the invitation is going to be to bring your sexuality back under God's blessing. And, um, that's, what we're, and that's what this is all building to. Uh, it's the climax, if you will. Horrible. <laughs> Horrible. Song of Songs, chapter 2. Now, if you're new with us, um, there, there are three people that kind of speak in this book. It's a, it's a collection of love poems. And it's kind of surprising that it made it into the Bible. It's not to anyone who really knows the Bible, because God isn't this oppressive, repressive sort of person. But the popular opinion is that the Bible is just a bunch of thou shalt nots. And then you have a book kind of right in the middle of the wisdom section that leads, let him, kisses, let it, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth because your lovemaking is more delightful than being intoxicated with wine. Um, you kind of raise an eyebrow a little bit at, oh, this made it into the Bible, isn't that interesting? And, and, and wouldn't you know that for years and years and years, uh, we've tried to desexualize this book. And, and, um, and one of the things we just want to do is, it, it, it is a book that operates on many different levels. And one of those levels is uh, on the level of sexuality and lovemaking and romance and attraction, and that's a good thing. And so, um, agree or disagree, the goal isn't for you to agree with me. Uh, The goal really is to have conversations that aren't normally had in the faith community and to see what God does with that. And so, I'm just, I'm thrilled you're here. And I I keep meeting some of you who, who will lead with, I haven't been in a church in about, and then you'll say however many number of years, and just thank you for trusting us with that. Um, Song of Psalms, chapter 2. Remember, um, (laughs) we we kind of um, interrupted the couple, kind of reminiscing. She's begging for raisins and apples because she's exhausted, and, and... and then, and then the, the, in the middle of chapter 2, uh, the poem shifts a little bit. And she says, she's still speaking, she says, verse 8, Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved, she says, is like a gazelle or a young stag, which, you know, my wife has said of me, Never out loud, but I'm sure she said it. (laughs) Look, there he stands behind, and what's it say? Our wall. Now, our wall, our plural, is her family. So the image is, she is young, she's still living at home. Here comes the lover, he's excited to see her. 
Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. This isn't stalking. This is exciting. (laughs) My beloved spoke to me and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. What season is this? Spring. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. So she's at home behind a wall, and he's inviting her out. He says to her, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, are vineyards that are in bloom. Now, what the image is, if, you know, because we're all familiar with vineyards, uh, before grapes appear, there are these little blossoms that appear on the vines. And foxes will come and they'll they'll eat these little blossoms, uh, preventing... Um, the vines from being fruitful. So a fox in the vineyard is a metaphor for something in the relationship that keeps it from bearing fruitful, keeps it from bearing fruit or being fruitful. Now, it raises, this passage raises an incredibly important theological conversation. What does the fox say? What does the fox say? So, now, look at anybody over 50. This is what the kids are into, okay? This is, this is a Norwegian comedy duo, Yelvis, that has a song pondering the great mystery of cats go meow and dogs go woof. But what does the fox say? So there it is. So, you're welcome. (laughs) Now, foxes are this picture of problems in a relationship. Married folks, is this an accurate depiction? Yes. Are there problems? Yes. Do you magically turn into somebody new on your wedding day? No. See, the great lie is that I can just do whatever I want as a single person and then get married and tomorrow act like I'm a married person. It doesn't quite work that way. So I want to explore this image of foxes in the vineyard. The idea that there are issues that spoil a relationship or issues that prevent a relationship from being fruitful. Now, before we get to practical, like sort of specific foxes, I want, to, I want to talk about why are relationships hard to begin with? Why are they so much work? Why in this epic poem, uh, epic love poem, do you have to have a section that talks about catching the foxes that could ruin our vineyard? Why? Go to Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you're annoyed with how much we're in Genesis, it's only going to get worse for the next several weeks. So just get used to it. 
Genesis chapter 1. Now, these are passages we've looked at already in our conversation, but, but there are things here that we skip over and I want to come back to, circle around, and, and draw your attention to because we're asking the question, why are relationships tough? Why do foxes exist, not in the literal sense, but in the relational sense, right? Because there's a sense in which um, if you've spent any time around the opposite sex, you realize, holy cow, this is a lot of work. And, and, and we want to talk about why that is. So Genesis chapter 1, put your thinking caps on for the next 15 minutes. There's a lot of Hebrew we're going to be doing. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind. Now, mankind is an unfortunate translation here because it's just generic. The word is Adam. Okay, it just means human beings. Let us make human beings in our image and in our likeness so they may what? Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, livestock, wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, the words image and likeness, we've talked about this before, but just to remind you, the words image and likeness have to do with, in the ancient Near East, if you were a king or a ruler and you had a large territory, what you would do is you would make images and likenesses of yourself in the form of statues and you would put them around your territory saying that you were sovereign over it. An image or a likeness in the ancient Near East was a way of saying this, is, this territory belongs to this ruler. Okay, So the idea is that human beings were to be God's image and likeness over the whole earth as examples, as images that this in fact the whole thing belonged to God. That's the idea. In the same way an ancient Near Eastern ruler would have images and statues of himself over a territory, God has images of himself over a territory. And the idea is that we were made in God's image to rule. Now rule, as we joke all the time, or not so joke, but jokingly say, rule doesn't mean strip, mine, and pollute. Rule means partner with God in the administration and governorship over the created world. That's the idea. So God creates men and women in his image, in his likeness. Why? So they may rule. So image and likeness are royal words. Ruling is a royal word. The idea is we reflect God's kingship over the earth. That's the idea. And there's work for us to do. Notice, verse 27, God created mankind, humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The idea is that man by himself or woman by herself, they're each image bearers, but the full image, both male and female, are needed to reflect the full image of God. That's the idea. There's no subordination, not a hint of inferiority. It is two people created in the image of God, co-equal, ontologically uh, identical in terms of their value and worth before God. And that, that's a big word that I just threw out there. Now, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So, the first command, the rabbis always pointed out, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. The first one is, be fertile. Have children. And the way God arranged for children to be made turns out to be really awesome. So be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now jump over to chapter 2. 
Chapter 1 is the wide-angle lens of the creation story. Chapter 2 zeroes in on the creation of the man and the woman specifically. And again, as always, if you don't buy uh, this stuff, I'm so glad you're here. There are points to be made out of it. We can have the whether or not Genesis is literal conversation some other time. But just set that aside and listen, because there are some things here, even if you don't buy it, that are worth kind of hearing and wrestling with. So, in Genesis 1, male, female, both reflect God's image, needed to reflect God's image, and they're given work to do, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and to rule it in a way that brings glory and honor to God and benefits creation itself. Now, in chapter 2, we meet, uh, we meet the man. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man. Now, here, the word for man is Adam or Adam. God, God formed a man and Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now look at me. The word for ground or earth is the word Adama. The word for man is the word Adam. Do you see the connection? The man was formed from the ground so he's named after the ground. The Adam came from the Adama. Naming in the ancient Near East was an expression of connection, that somehow the man was going to be connected to the ground in some way, and in some way find meaning, maybe purpose, significance, identity in his relationship to the ground. And sure enough, the first commandments given the man are take care of the garden, work it, and so on. So the man is named from the ground. The Adam is named after the Adama. Now there, there's relevance coming. Jump down to verse 18. More instructions given to the man. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be what? Now it's interesting. The man had all of God that a human being could have, right? There's no sin, no shame, no nothing. It's him and God and the animals. And God says, it's not good that the guy's alone. Which means, evidently, that God made us to actually need each other. So anytime somebody tells you, well, all you need is God, well, that's true, but the God who's the only one you need also tells you you need other people too. So there's a sense in which, and the not good line stands in stark contrast uh, to all of the times in chapter one that God says, it was good, it was good, it was good, and God saw it, it was good, it was good, it was good, and here's the only thing that's not good. It's not good that the man is alone. So... I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, English is horrible. Okay, that sounds like he needs a secretary. (laughs) Right? I mean, mean, we hear that and we go, really? Now, suitable helper is two words in Hebrew. Ezer connecto. Okay, the word ezer means ally or helper. And Ezer is used of God helping Israel all over the Old Testament. So, if you want to say that God is somehow subordinated to humanity because he's a helper, that's the only way you can say that woman is somehow subordinated to man as a helper. There is no trace of that in the word. The word is used of God as he is an ally to Israel. So that's what it means to be an Ezer. It's a very, very strong word. Konegdo is a word that means, and, and st- stick with me, it means a like opposite. 
It means a corresponding counterpart. It means something that is alike enough, but opposite enough, something else. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a contradictory word. It, it, it's, it's, I can't think of a better example than this, so forgive me. It's like, it's like two puzzle pieces. They have to be alike enough to be, belong to the same puzzle, but they have to be different enough to fit together. Does that make sense? So this is what, that's the image, is, is the woman and the man, they're alike opposites. They're both made in God's image, but she's a counterpart, and she's equal to. And so the idea isn't that God says, looks at the man and says, man, that dude needs an administrative assistant, or that, that guy just needs an outlet for sexual urges or something. No, seriously. I mean, we, the, the old King James has this help meet. And, and there is a train, there is a, a line of thinking um, in Christian circles that makes this a subordinating thing. And that's just not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is very, very strong about who this person is and how this person fits with the Adam. Now, jump down if you would. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's what? Ribs. Now, I know, if you're here, you're, you're like a biology major, you're going, I don't think so. The Hebrew here is that it's not rib, it's actually side. Now, think about the imagery. God took the man's side. Not, not head, not feet, but side. What does that connotate? Equal, right? Equal. So, Whether you buy like it's a rib or not, the image is unbelievably powerful. And in a patriarchal culture in which this was written, this kind of thing wasn't said. That human beings were both made in God's image and male and female reflected God's image together. And so you have now the woman. What was the man made from? The dirt. What was the woman made from? The man. Notice Adam picks up on this. Verse 23. When he sees the woman, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, he's not naming her here. He's designating a category for her. In other words, she's like him, but different. So, in Hebrew, pay attention. She says, she shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. So, look at me. The man was named in relationship to the ground. The woman was named, not a proper name yet. Adam doesn't even have a proper name yet. Adam becomes his formal name later in the story, but right now it's just generic for man. The Adam was named in relationship to the ground. The Ish, Isha, was, re, was named in relationship to the Ish, the man. All right? Now, what this sets up is the following idea. That there was some connection the man was to have to the ground, and there was some connection the man and the woman were to share together. Okay? Are you with me on this? Now, how long does this beautiful picture last? Two chapters. Right? It ends with, they were naked and unashamed. Right? A beautiful picture of intimacy with God and each other. 
We met the talking snake last week, right? And the red tornado of death. I want, uh, so, so review the red tornado if you need to, but I want to draw your attention to what God does in response to the disobedience of our first parents. Flip over to Genesis 3. This will connect to foxes in about 10 minutes. <laughs> okay, chapter 3, verse 16. These are judgments given by God to the serpent to the woman, and then to the man. And I want you to notice, these are not random. All right, this is, this is a huge point coming. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Why? I mean, that's kind of random, right? You've disobeyed, so childbearing is going to be difficult now. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Ooh, that sounds horrible. Now, think about what he's saying here, okay? First thing, I will frustrate, I will, I will make your pains in childbearing um, difficult. I will increase them. What was the first command given to the man and the woman? To fill the earth. The woman was the vessel through whom the earth would be filled, right? She carries the child, gives birth to the child. So God frustrates the woman's ability to do that by making childbearing painful. The woman was named after the man, right? Isha and Ish. So God then curses the male-female relationship. It says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You have to understand that's life now in a fallen world. That wasn't God's design. The word desire in Hebrew doesn't mean sexual desire. I wish it did. The word means, the word is a power word that's used in Genesis 4 of Cain's, uh, of sin's desire to master or control Cain. So here's the idea. The wife now, the woman, will have the desire to master or control her husband, but the husband will want to rule over her. So instead of two equals partnering with each other in the accomplishment of God's purposes on the earth, what do you have instead? You have a power struggle. You have foxes in the vineyard, right? Now, you may be thinking, why would God do that? See, we read chapter 3 and we think, oh, isn't that random that God would like Curse the childbearing, really? Pain, really? I mean, we have epidurals. What's the big deal? The writer is, and that's only said by guys, okay? That last line. But the writer is telling us that God was very strategic in his judgments. Notice how he curses the man. Verse 17. Cursed is the what? The ground because of you. Painful toil now will be your lot in producing food to eat. So, the man and the woman, right? The man was named after the ground, made to find, in some way, meaning, purpose, significance from his relationship to the ground. The woman was made from the man, meant to find, in some way, meaning, purpose, identity, in a relationship with the man. So what's God do in response to sin? He frustrates the very impulses he gave them. Do you see that? Yes? 
Why? Now, this is a whole other talk we could give. But short answer is because he was being merciful. What do you do with rebellious, sinful creatures? You frustrate life so that life can't work apart from him. In other words, for men and women, they were, there'll be no way they'll ever find satisfaction in their work. Even though work wasn't a consequence of the fall, it's never enough. You never get enough awards, you never make enough money, you never, there, there's never an enoughness in what we do. That's God's curse. And for male and female relationships, there's never, and, and, and maybe there is, I mean, maybe there is the perfect couple out there that never argues, that never hurts each other, that never disappoints each other. I haven't met them. Perhaps if Jesus had gotten married, that would have, I, I don't know. She would have still been a sinner, I guess. I don't know. But even the best of our marriages, the amount of work you have to do to get there. Why? Because anyone tempted to find their ultimate meaning, purpose, and significance in relationships will now be forced to look elsewhere. Do you see what God has done? Now, agree or disagree, this isn't central to our point, but I just want to say, the way, I mean, think about it. If money really satisfied, we'd stop there. If pleasure just really satisfied, we'd stop there. See, how many people do you know that came to Jesus when life was glorious? You know? No, I meet people all the time. Well, <laughs> I was broken and I needed healing. I was sinful. I needed saving. I mean, it's you come to your emptiness. You come to your darkness. You come to the recognition that you need help. And so I think God designed life to be frustrating. Now, that doesn't mean every fight comes from Him. I'm not saying that. We're, we're all guilty. But do you see the point I think the writer's making? Instead of the naked and unashamed intimacy between men and women in the fall now, the woman's desire will be, and however this plays out, to control and master, and the man's desire will be to rule. So now it's a power struggle. And couples will tell you, what do they fight about most? Money and sex. Why? Because those are power issues. So when we talk about foxes in the vineyard, I want to just give you a perspective about why there are foxes at all. And why you have to fight to have a good relationship. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. One last point, then we'll back to foxes. Are you guys out there? Okay. I feel, you know, I feel like there are landmines everywhere. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Now, if you've been with us, remember week number 2, we talked about this really... <laughs> at times, abused and misunderstood passage, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. And and we made a couple of really big points. Number one, the general admonition in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1 says, be imitators of God. So, there's your big, like, overarching command. Then there's another command in chapter 5 that says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, there are five things that happen when you're filled with the Spirit. Singing, making music. The last one is that you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in Greek, which English doesn't pick up very well, in Greek, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, comma, husbands do this, or excuse me, wives do this to your husbands. 
So no one can ever rip verse 22 out without referencing verse 21. So Paul just simply says, as he says everywhere else, the natural order of your living should be placing, this is what submit means, to be voluntarily placing the interests of other people ahead of your own, comma, wives do this to your husbands. Okay? That's what it means. And if you remember, right, if, if this is new to you, go back and listen to it from a couple of weeks ago. It's really, really important you understand. And Paul goes on, says, For the husband is the head of the wife, verse 23, Ephesians 5, The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And we hear that in America in cringe. We think that means be doormats, be subservient, right? And and guys, in their quest to rule, will pull this passage out and, and use it in ways that are abusive and domineering and totally against the thread of what Paul was saying. Because remember, nobody in the first century would have thought this was revolutionary. What would have been considered revolutionary was that Paul addressed husbands. That's the thing that would have been revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ of the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. So, husbands are head of the wives. Awesome. Sweet. Right? It validates my desire to rule. I'm a benevolent dictator. Awesome. Well, what's headship mean? The way Christ loved the church. Oh. What's that mean? And gave himself up for her. Oh. See, we have a lot of folks that want the title head of the house, but nobody wants the job description. Right? And dudes, I hate to be giving up our secrets. But in a fallen world, our natural desire is to want to rule. And what does God call us to instead? To serve. And in a fallen world, ladies, our natural desire is to want to master and control. What does Paul call us to instead? Submit. And he uses an interesting synonym. Go to verse 33. He says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, do you see what Paul's done? The natural sinful inclination is a power struggle, right? To master and to rule. Now, in Christ, embody Jesus' relationship with his church. Guys, instead of ruling, serve. And ladies, instead of trying to master, respect and submit. Voluntarily. What do you have here? You have the reversal of Genesis 3. You don't have a manifesto against women. It's quite the opposite. What you have is male-female relationships to be transformed so that the authority of the guy is found in his sacrifice. What's that mean? It means, gentlemen, that we use our time, our energy, our passion, our money and give that for the benefit of our wife and children. It doesn't mean just dying when it's glorious. It means dying when it's not glorious. It means when you say yes to husbanding and fatherhood, you're saying yes to self-denial and sacrifice. 
And how opposite is that from our culture's understanding? For so many, marriage is just a way to extend adolescence. Mom took care of me, wife takes care of me. And wives, aren't you willing? Right? I mean, how many women marry the guy they could be rather than the guy they are? So you have this constant war of a wife saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, fix, 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 and a dude resenting and saying, you know what, I have a mom, I don't need another one. But yet I do. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. Am I just speaking to anybody else here? Am I alone? (laughs) And, And the goal isn't to beat up on dudes, but we've lost any sense of what it means to be masculine and married. So we either, we, we, we either are absent, we're cowardly, we don't fight, we just back away, and we live parallel lives. And what you have instead is you have the invitation to give yourself wholly to someone who isn't worth it, by the way, right? I mean, that's a sinner, and you're going to find that out soon enough, and you're not, there comes a moment, I mean, let me try it a different way. What's love? What is it? What is it? Giving yourself? Absolutely. Is it, is it primarily a feeling in the scriptures? No. God, so God commands the husband, love your wives. He's not saying feel romantic towards your wives. He's not saying have warm fuzzies towards your wives. Love is a verb. Do you understand this? The most tragic illusion that young folks, you understand, is that there is something called love that you fall in and out of. That's not love. That's lust, infatuation, that's endorphins, that's pizza. I mean, that, that isn't love. I'm serious. Love isn't an emotion. It's a commitment to act For the welfare of another person. You only love somebody when you act for their welfare. So when the Bible says, husbands love your wives, he's not saying, God can't command emotions like, hey, feel in love all the time. Because you're not gonna. Instead, the command is, give yourself for the benefit of your wives. For that's what love is. Now think about how significant that is. In the Bible, you fall in love after you're married, not before. Isn't that weird? You don't get married for love. You get married for other reasons, and then you pray that you grow in love once you're married. We're going to go to war against the idea that there's this one, the one, this soulmate. You don't have a soulmate out there, okay? Single folks, You don't. What you have are sinners out there. (laughs) And ladies, sorry. I mean, I hate to beat up on the Hollywood fiction, but it ironically, such a high view of soulmate keeps people from getting married. Because they're constantly looking for the one. And by the one they mean, the one that will never ask them to change, the one they'll never have to say sorry to, the one that they'll never fight with, the one that won't grow fat, the one that won't ever ask anything of them. That's what they mean by the one. And that person doesn't exist. 
The person that does exist, though, is an alike opposite that God will use to grow you in such profound ways that your marriage, if you let it, ends up looking a lot like the good news of Jesus. Now, are you with me on this point? Agree or disagree? It's totally cool. But you see how crazy we are in the way that we view this. We think marriage is fundamentally about self-fulfillment. And then you get married and realize, oh, it's about self-denial. And it's about loving another sinful person the way that God loves me as a sinful person. Wow. So sometimes it's just easier to stay single, or so we think. Now, back to foxes. Go, go back to Song of, Song, Song of Songs. It's coming. Are you guys out there? Yeah, okay. I don't buy it. Forced. Forced. <laughs> and like we've said, I feel so ill-equipped to talk about some of this stuff. I mean, it's not like I've got it all figured out. I mean, right before I came up on stage, I had to call my wife and apologize. Seriously. You know, and, and the way I like to apologize, here's how I like to apologize. Honey, yes, I was wrong, but here's what you did that totally made my reaction <laughs> fine. Now, let's talk about foxes. We get, we get two hints of foxes in their relationship. So, here's where we've been. Hey, why are there foxes in a relationship? Why is love difficult? Why is it hard? Well, part of the reason it's hard is because it's dealing with two fallen human beings, sure. But part of the reason it's hard, too, is because God, I believe, out of mercy, has frustrated self-interested people so that everything they look to to find meaning, purpose, and identity will ultimately let them down to drive them back to him as an act of mercy. That's what I think. So I think you have to work. If you're looking for a relationship, the whole diatribe about love was designed to say if you're looking for a relationship that's easy, you won't ever find one. Okay, because they're all going to be hard. Now, there's better kinds of hard and there's worse kinds of hard, right? But the issue can't be I'm looking for perfection and easy. Because no matter how in love you are on your wedding day, there'll come a point in your marriage where you will go, what have I done? Right? Married folks, can I get an amen? And that is a normal part. When you outgrow the endorphins, And you realize, I am called to act loving even when I don't feel loving. Wow. Now you're getting close to gospel. Now you're getting close to imitating this Jesus. When you're willing to pour yourself out even if you don't want to. So, she gives us a couple examples of foxes in the relationship. I love this. Verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. Totally equal. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. That's all night long. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. I think she's saying, let's go for a cup of coffee. Don't you? (laughs) 
Now, then she shares a fear that she has. She says, all night long in my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now, go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves, she says? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me, which is kind of weird. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it desires. In other words, we get a glimpse into her fear that she'll be what? Abandoned. Right? The fear of, and, and true love is always risky. It always demands, I mean, when you put yourself out there, I mean, you think asking somebody on a date is hard, right? I mean, when you do the bended knee and get the ring out, you know, I only did it once I was sure the answer was yes. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even if there was any question, I wasn't going to ask her to marry me, right? And so, so I, you know, I bribed her and made promises, and it was a yes. But all that is to say, <laughs> the risk doesn't stop. Because the longer you're married, the, the person that can hurt you most in the world is your spouse. I mean, my wife and I, we know the tender spots. I can just say a phrase and zero in on a deep wound that she has. She can just give me a look that provokes all of this junk. So it's not like fear goes away when you find the one you're married to. So one of the foxes is fear. You're continually trusting because love is a commitment. It's an expression of trust. And then notice another fox. This is awesome that this is in here. Go to chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, she says, but my heart was awake. So what's she doing? I slept, but my heart was awake. What is she doing here? I'm going to say dreaming. Evidently, a thousand or so people disagree. <laughs> Listen, my beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. He knocking at her door. And we don't know exactly what the image is, but evidently he'd been out working all night. Notice what she says. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had what? Left. Oh my goodness. You want to know what are the main foxes? Honey, you want to do this? And she says, not tonight. I have three kids. I have a headache. I've taken off my shoes. Must I soil my feet again? I've taken off my robe. I mean, it's brilliant that in this 3,000-year-old love document, you not only have the heights of sexual glory and young stags on rugged hills, what you have is a dude who's been working all night saying, hey, honey. And her saying, not really. <laughs> right? 
I mean, I love that this is in here. So, I want to go through a list of foxes and, and single folks. Raise your hand if you're single. Just look around at each other. Okay, that's awesome. Hey, back there. Way to wave, big time. Okay, look at me. The lie, as we've said, is that you will change into a different kind of person once you're married. And if you're not careful, what you're doing as a single person is you're just collecting foxes to bring into your marriage. I mean, if you think about, yep, I mean, you know, standing at like your wedding day saying, yep, here are all my exes, here are all the people I've slept with, here are all my sexual experiences, here's the disease I've got, here's the abuse, here's, I mean, all of the ways I dated and gave my heart away. Here. (laughs) Yours forevermore. (laughs) Right? Or the dude. Right? Here's all the women I've conquered. Here, here's all the lust that I've fed my mind. Here are the millions of pornographic images that have numbed me out. Here. Right? I mean, the lie is that how you are as a single person doesn't matter to how you will be as a married person. And that's just not true. It's not like all of a sudden you learn self-control when you're married. It's not like lust goes away when you're married. It's not like disappointment goes away when you're married. It's not like unfulfilled desire go away goes away when you're married. You don't just say I do and turn into this beautiful person with a character like Jesus. That's why how you are as a single person matters because you're just collecting foxes. And you don't think that any of the stuff you're bringing in will matter? Brothers and sisters, that's just not true. And so we don't want to be moralists or legalists about can you date or not date or whatever. I just, I'm just concerned that you're single in a way that blesses your future spouse. That's all. That minimizes the amount of work you have to do once you're committed. Now, all of us have screwed up. All of us are failures. I get it. God can restore what the locusts have taken. But why wait to do the hard work I mean, you have, in the Bible, it's so revolutionary that there's an exalted view of singleness. That's just, that, Bible's the first document that ever had that. Every other culture shames single people. I mean, to be single, some of the married folks would love to join you. Right? I just want you to see it as an opportunity to do some of the work that a lifelong commitment will demand. Now, to not just wait and say, well, I can be single and then sleep around, get drunk, do whatever, and then when I have kids, I'll settle down. Ah, I just wish it worked like that. However you are before you're married is however you will be afterwards. But the stakes are that much higher. So what are foxes? Two foxes that she mentions, fear and conflict. My wife and I, we love to argue in different ways. She, when we were first married, is a conflict avoider. The not-so-kind name I gave her was the dump truck. Um, She would never tell me she was upset until three weeks later when I'd done a bunch of things to make her upset, and they would all come out at once. And I would sit there and say, I don't even remember that. 
You know, and she would just be a list of da 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 da. I was a conflict seeker. Shocking. <laughs> Honey, I want to talk about this right now. I don't know what I'm thinking. How can you not know what you're thinking, I would say. Just tell me what you're thinking. I don't know what I'm thinking, she would say. Or I would say, and, and again, I'm no hero. I would say, well, you're not being very rational here. That was a great one. Best line she ever gave me. I don't care if I'm being irrational. This is how I feel. And you will deal with how I'm feeling. Yeah, it's okay. So, how you argue is a massive fox. Why? Because you're two sinful people and you're going to hurt each other. And so there are four, some writer, I don't remember his name, so there are four horsemen of the apocalypse in marriage. Horrible ways to deal with foxes. Way number one is criticism. Not complaining like, you know, that really hurt me. Or not sharing a concern like I'm worried about us, but the constant criticism of the other person's character. You always did it. You never did it. You are so dumb when it comes to this. That's bad. Second one is condescension. <sighs> the heavy sigh. The eye roll. Oh, the eye roll devastates me. Because it's here we go again. Here we go again. We've had this fight 800 times. Here we go again. The sarcasm. The dismissing. The mean nicknames. Third one, stonewalling, my personal favorite. Once my wife stopped being afraid of conflict and started initiating all the time, so that there wasn't, I had to say, honey, do you have to tell me everything that bugs you that I do? Do you have, I mean, I like the list. Can we go back a little bit to the list side of this? And, and, and it's, it's so healthy. I mean, I can hardly even stand it how much we've grown. Because for the first part of our marriage, I tried to turn her into me. She, I tried to make her argue like I wanted to argue. And I just had to repent of that. Absolutely. And in that safety, she actually feels way more free to express her concerns on a relatively regular basis. <laughs> and, and so now what I do, and this is just as horrible. But, but stonewalling is, I, I just check out. I just, you know, and my mind just goes somewhere else, you know, or, or I'm checking my phone, or, or the game's on, or the paper gets higher, or the book gets closer, or, you know what I'm saying? And, and is that helpful? No. And then the last one, defensiveness. <laughs> yes, I was wrong, but here's what you did. Right? It's never just owning it. Now, the reason I go over these isn't some big therapy session. We have incredible, incredible therapists in our church who can help you. I just want to say, listen, if you don't deal with these kinds of things, dating, single, or married, this is the kind of thing that will totally spoil your relationship. If you don't know, learn how to conflict well, what are other foxes? Married people, what are other foxes? Yell them. 
What? Withholding information. Oh my goodness. Okay. Did you know they were pregnant? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me? I, I didn't. I, I, I don't remember to. Why don't you tell me about your day? I just talked all day. I don't want to talk about my day anymore. Right? I mean, th- these are things I, horrible things I say. Not horrible, but just they're like being honest, right? I don't, I don't want to tell you about every meeting I said, and I, I, I relived them. I lived them once. I don't want to go back over them. You know? Let's talk about you. Let's talk about something else. Withholding information. Um, oh, oh, honey, I forgot to tell you I've got plans tonight. Right? What are, what are other foxes? What? Oh, my goodness. Children. Yes, you are foxes. Before my wife had three children. Well, I won't say it. Oh, okay. Yes. Now, the reason we're going to go over these very quickly is I just want to draw your attention and then we'll do Q&A. Family of origin is a huge one. Uh, Particularly when you get older. And you're mature enough to love your parents and recognize that they weren't perfect. And some of what you were handed from them isn't awesome. There are much that is, but there are some things that aren't. What happens in families, if that stuff isn't called out into the open and acknowledged, there are lots of secrets in families, that what will happen is when you end up trying to get into a relationship with somebody, you'll find yourself doing things that you don't quite understand until you look backwards and say, Oh, this was what my dad did. Oh, this is what my mom did. Oh, this is what my parents did. And again, some of you are young enough that you're like, ah, I'm great. Live in that illusion as long as possible. (laughs) All right, now what was the other what was the other one you said the other fox you guys were saying? Secrets. Oh my goodness. I can't tell you how many uh, couples I've counseled that end up getting married and then he says, I've got a porn addiction. Right? So wouldn't that, that have been helpful to lead like before you got married, right? I mean, there's a, now I'm not saying unload your baggage to everybody you meet on the first date saying, well, here's my list of issues. Here's my family of origin. Here's the number of my therapist. Go ahead and, and check out. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But my goodness, There is a sense in dating where we are perpetually putting our best foot forward. And if you don't give it enough time, you don't actually learn what the person's really like. And then you got all this stuff, often in the form of secrets that you just didn't know. What else? No one said money? In-laws. In-laws. Now there are in-laws and outlaws, right? Outlaws are wanted. In-laws, no. Think about it. Think about it. Hey, wh- who are, where are you going to spend Thanksgiving and Christmas? Where are you going to spend your anniversary? There are some families that demand that you are at their house every single holiday forever. And the rule of thumb is, you never want your spouse dealing with your family and confronting them on things, right? So there is a, a passage in the scripture that talks about leaving your family and starting a new one. And sometimes we do that too harshly and sometimes we don't do that enough. 
right? There comes a point when the husband-wife relationship is more important than the son-father relationship or the mother-daughter relationship. And some moms and dads have a really hard time letting go. And we don't blame them for that. But at some point, you have to say, this is what we are going to do and be willing to work through the hurt sometimes that that creates. Right? If you're not, see, the reason we bring these up, look at me, is if you're not talking about these things, if you haven't got a mutual commitment to work on these issues, guess what they're going to do? They're going to blow up in your face. Money. Oh my goodness. Do opposites attract? Yeah. So the spender marries the saver, (laughs) the night owl marries the morning person, right? The neat nick. Mary's the slob. (laughs) And for a while, that's so interesting about the other person. (laughs) And then it gets annoying, right? And the only variable between interesting and annoying, someone once joked, is time. That what's fascinating originally turns out to drive you crazy. So I am unbelievably conservative financially. My wife is not. My money is meant to be spent. For me, money is meant to be saved unless a new iPhone's out. <laughs> so we argue, the, first, the biggest arguments in our marriage were money. And, and how, she, she always felt like, well, I feel like your dad and I have to ask for an allowance. And I'd feel like, well, you're not trustworthy with what you have and so I have to check. And she'd say, well, pfft, I'm, 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 First of all, I'm an adult woman. I think I know what I'm doing. Yeah, but you, you and, and you just go back and forth. And, and listen, if you don't talk about this stuff before you're married or while you're married, this will blow up. It is these kinds of things that will ruin a relationship if you don't deal with them. So my wife and I have systems now <laughs> that we have for budgeting. You have to. You have to have a system where you communicate with each other about what you're going to do with your time. You have to figure out a way to argue well and apologize well. You have to negotiate about in-laws. You have to figure out how you want to raise your children. That's why it's so destructive if people from two faith traditions try to work it out. I'm telling you, it's hard enough with another follower of Jesus, let alone if Jesus really is center of your life and being with somebody who's, who doesn't hold that as sacred and as central as you do, that is just setting you up for so much frustration. And so brothers and sisters, kind of a rambly journey tonight, but here's the point. Argue with rambly for a second. Just argue with me. Say, it wasn't rambly. <laughs> yeah, it was rambly, okay. Um, but here's the point. All of this has been set up So, in the middle of this love poem, they talk about these foxes that ruin a relationship. Okay, well, why are there foxes to begin with? Why are they hard? Well, one of the reasons is because God arranged it so that life won't work out without him. Yes, we can have momentary glimpses of success, significance, identity, purpose, meaning, hallelujah for those, but ultimately there's this never-enoughness that characterizes everything. And that, I suggest, is an expression of God's mercy to drive self-interested creatures back to him. That means, therefore, that even with two Christians, relationships are tough. Love is difficult. 
And love turns out to not be in a call to an emotion, but a mutual commitment to work through the issues as an act of faith, an act of trust. And as you do that, the feelings actually get stronger. But not if you just say, I've got to feel infatuated the whole time or I'm out. Because infatuation will wear off. All right, let's, with fear and trembling, let's go to questions. You mentioned last week that porn has influenced what men expect in a sexual relationship. How do you think Fifty Shades of Grey will affect women's expectations? That is a fantastic question. Does it not say something huge about our culture that people were totally okay walking around with that and reading it just all over the place? Now, I can say that I didn't read that. So I, I'm... I, but I have friends that did. I don't know. I mean, I've heard, I've heard enough about it that it's some college girl and some older guy, right? And they get into bondage and weird stuff. And, and, and I, I would just simply say this. Sex can either be a gift or a God, right? And our culture, what our culture wants to do with it is to say sex is the highest form of, of self-expression, There's no boundaries on it except for whatever your desires want to do. As long as you find a willing partner, do anything you want. And a a book like that, and I I guess it's going to be made into a movie, communicates a view of sexuality that I think is absolutely degrading to the image bearers that the story is about. And, and, And I don't mean to say that in a marriage relationship, when there's mutuality, you can't you know, get a little funky or something. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is when that is so glamorized, like there was a question last week about anal sex. One of the points I tried to make was, listen, anal sex wasn't demanded before until porn got so popular. And now, right, it's kind of like expected. Oral sex and anal sex are just expected now in dating relationships. It's not a big deal. She can't get pregnant. And we just want to say, no, no, ladies, gentlemen, no. The lie is that somehow that isn't sex, first of all. But then secondly, there's something far more tragic happening when we're using each other that way. Think about it this way. When you use somebody as an object, it's not just that you rob them of their humanity, but you start diminishing your own. And a lot of the pressure in marriages or in relationships to do this sex act or to do this sex act comes from a sex-saturated culture and doesn't come from a place of loving self-sacrifice. And, and I just want to say, I don't, know, I don't know enough about Fifty Shades of Grey uh, to know what effect it will have on women's expectations. I just know that real-life sex doesn't look like porn. Real-life sex does it look like the most incredible orgasm every single time you have it? Real life sex turns out to be sometimes negotiated. Honey, I'm so tired, but I love you. <laughs> you know, and uh, oh, I'll take it. I will take that. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. That, but what happens is we set ourselves up for this this massive experiential ideal that the real thing can never measure up to. And if you've become the kind of person that can only find sexual satisfaction by doing things that cause harm, 
I would say we've got far deeper issues than your sexual activity, right? There's something else. That's just a symptom of something far deeper. Don't know if I've answered it, but I just want to, I'm thrilled you would ask. Next. We recently found out that our daughter, who is in a homosexual relationship, is engaged and invited us to her wedding. As her parents, we would like to know what is the Christian way to respond to her. Oh, the Christian way to respond to her is love her. I mean, end of story. End of story. Now, what does love require? Well, love doesn't demand that you pretend. Love doesn't demand that you don't express truth. But love demands that you're at the wedding. Love demands that you love her. Listen, I tell my children all the time, there's a difference between what I approve of and my genuine joy in them as my children. And I tell them, my little boy prayed to receive Jesus when he was seven. And the first thing I told him was, even if you never did, I'd be proud of you. Even if you were in jail, I'd be proud of you. There's not one thing you could ever do to make me love you less. There's, there's, there are things sometimes I don't approve of. Absolutely. And there are things you don't approve of of me. But we, I, will never let you go. I will be relentless in my love for you. Now, is that always easy with our kids? Nope. Kids on drugs. Kids run away. I mean, oh. Somebody defined parenting as having your heart leave your body and walk around. Right? So, what should the Christian response be? Brothers and sisters, the Christian response is to love her, to pray for her, to stay in relationship with her. Um, I don't want to get into, we're, we're going to have a whole conversation, I think, about homosexuality in the gay community, because there's just so much craziness out there. So I don't want to get into that yet. My, my assumption is you've probably communicated in some way that this isn't what your ideal would be for her. But I don't think you have to keep repeating that. I think there comes a point when you just love her. And, and you pray and pray and pray and love and love and love. And at some point, they become adults and you can't control them. And that's easy for me to say when I have a 10, 8, and 4-year-old. And I will be nutso when I have to let them go. I get it. But there's another sense that if we're to call, if we're to call, if we're called to embody Jesus' love, well, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Without Jesus, it's an impossible standard. But with Him, don't give up. Just do not give up. Don't give up. Never give up. And she, and it's not just something you need to feel in your heart. It needs to be said to her now more than ever. Ah, I feel so inadequate with some of these. I'm in my 30s, and every year that passes by, marriage sounds less and less appealing because everyone talks about how hard it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why is it worth it? Oh, that's such a great question. Because we're trying to deal with two extremes. One extreme so over-romanticizes marriage that single people feel defective and somehow incomplete until they're married... And the other view is so cynical towards marriage that you just go, well, why would anyone ever want to do that? So to beat up on the overly romantic view, I call out the foxes 
and say, this is tough and this is hard. But to combat the cynicism, I will simply say this. I have never in my life done something more significant than to try to learn to be somebody who loves regardless of how he feels. I have never in my life done anything more significant. When I first held my wife's hand, I remember we we were out at a restaurant and I held her hand and it was electric. The wind was blowing from the east. The sun was setting (laughs) in the west. I mean, do you know the electricity I'm talking about? Right? You hold, I mean, and it's like, holy cow! The chemistry in our holding hands is just unbelievable. So we've been married 13 years. When I hold her hand now, do I feel that same electricity? Nope, not even remotely. I don't. I don't get butterflies when I hold her hand anymore. But the other day, I was looking at her hand. And this is the hand that has given birth to three children. This is the hand that is sacrificed so that I could pursue God's call. This is the hand that has held mine when I've lost my dad, when I've lost my stepdad, when I found out our son had Down syndrome. This was the hand that held mine when I found out I was clinically depressed and anxious. This is the hand that has been stable when I've been all over the map. The electricity of that first moment is gone, but it has been replaced with something far more profound. When I hold that hand, I am saying, I choose you again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And that is worth it. But you have to fight to get there. That's the part, that's the part that doesn't come easy, but it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. But I share that hesitatingly because I don't want you to feel less than as a single person. I don't want you to feel like until you're married, you're just on standby. That's just not how this works. And so you're trying to walk such a fine line, right? You don't want to overly romanticize marriage. But at the same time, it's a good thing. It is a good thing. But not all of you will be called to be married. Some of you will want to be and and it won't work out. Some of you will find yourself Right with strange attractions and things and issues and you'll be going, man, what's God doing here? The answer isn't to every problem, it's just, hey, get married. But at the same time, for those that are invited into it, it's a phenomenal thing. Great question. Next. Since we are alike opposites of men, what do you say to women who believe themselves to be lesser? How do they change their perspective? That is a phenomenal question. Now, there's a big debate in, in Christian circles about how men and women are to relate to each other. There are folks called complementarians, you don't need to know all of this, who believe that there are distinct roles and there's headship and, and all of those sorts of things. And then there are people called egalitarians who believe that there are no gender roles, um, even in church and home. I actually think both are wrong. And not that I'm some smart guy, but I've just found anytime, anytime people force you into one of two choices... You know, it's like Calvinism. People say, do you believe in predestination or do you believe people choose? Yes. <laughs> I see verses that seem to suggest both, right? We, after all, we follow a Trinitarian God who's threeness and oneness. We follow a Jesus that was fully God and fully human. I'm cool with mystery and paradox when it comes to the things of God, all right? That's just what I'm saying. Now, 
when it comes to how men and women should relate, on the one hand, there is this thing called headship that is biblical. But on the other hand, headship isn't expressed without reference to Jesus' sacrifice. So, part of what I would tell a, a young lady that's feeling subordinated is simply that she's been lied to. It is possible to have gender distinctions and not make them about superior and inferior. What does the fox say? <laughs> See, if you're watching at home, I hope you don't have epilepsy or something. This is horrible. So, so here's what I would say. I would say to this young lady, Listen, I think men or women are different. I think God designed them to be different. I think God is glorified when they're different. So I, I do think there are roles, and I think there's, there's headship, and I think all of that's right, but the way we spell it out has been so unbiblical, at least classically, that I would want her to immerse herself in some of the scriptures that talk about the image-bearing nature of women. To hear this, but to really immerse themselves in it, and to just be around people Find married couples that live this way is the biggest thing I would say. Because the healthiest marriages won't be one trying to control the other. They'll be trying to outserve each other. And when you find that, from, and they do it not from places of weakness, but from places of strength, you realize that is the most God-honoring thing you can imagine. Two people who don't have to, but choose to serve one another, that is a picture of the gospel. Now, there may be something deeper than this, and so I'd want to talk to the, to the young lady and, and, or somebody, have somebody talk to her and just say, hey, is there something behind that? But I would say, no, 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 nowhere in the scriptures does it say that somehow you're inferior or supposed to feel that way. Last one. Whoa. <laughs> Me and my boyfriend have been dating for all four years of high school, and near uh, the middle of senior year, I found out I was pregnant. My boyfriend was excited to start a family, but I was ready to pursue college. Two months later, I found out I had a miscarriage. My boyfriend blamed me for the miscarriage. And a couple of weeks later, we broke up. Is it my fault for the miscarriage because I wasn't ready to have a child yet? <sighs> have I told you lately how inadequate I feel? Um... When we, uh, we found out um, our third child had Down syndrome, for some reason my wife felt like it was her fault. She'd had Down syndrome in her family and in some strange way she felt like she was at fault for it. And, um, and we had people, um, some of whom weren't very helpful, subtly sort of reinforce that. Uh, I don't think God causes special needs children as punishment. I don't think he causes miscarriages as punishment. Um, I don't think he can, but I just don't see Jesus. If you look at Jesus, I don't see Jesus ever doing that. What I see Jesus doing is redeeming and loving, telling the truth always. 
See, part of the reason why, you know, getting pregnant in the middle of high school, I mean, that's just a heavy, heavy burden. And then you have a miscarriage, and now you're at fault? Well, were you in sin? I think you were, of course. I think, as we'll see, there's purposes to sexuality and marriage that go far beyond God being a Puritan. But I don't think that would cause God's judgment on a miscarriage. I don't think so. I don't believe that. What I believe is that what the locusts have taken, God can restore. And that you shouldn't see yourself as damaged goods. You shouldn't see yourself as a failure. You shouldn't see yourself as someone who has just a ton of baggage now and just settle for any guy that keeps you warm because you're not worth it. I just don't think that's true at all. I do think, though, that this is bigger than you to be able to handle by yourself. And if your family isn't able to walk with you or you haven't let them, you've got to find somebody to walk with you in this because it's too much. I mean, there are married folks that struggle with miscarriages and, and the guilt, the disappointment that comes out of that. And I would just simply also say, I would want to call you, even if you're still with this guy, to stop engaging in sexual behavior with him, to heal from that, to, to, uh, to re-engage as two people in a different way. Once you bring in a dating relationship, once you, once you bring sex into the equation, it just dominates. And you quit talking as much, and you quit. And there's enough trauma there, just from what you've said in your text, that I would say, even if you're with him, you need to take a season away uh, from acting out sexually with him to reevaluate the whole thing. Because I also don't, wouldn't want you to be with a guy that just says it's your fault all the time too, you know? It takes two, I think, the last time I checked to get pregnant. So, guys, I always feel so vulnerable um, because I know these answers aren't always adequate. All I know is this. Don't give your situation to God. Give yourself. And he will shock you with how good and loving he turns out to be. The church, if you're here and you've had bad experiences in the church, boy, you are so not alone. Jesus is much better than the church. The church doesn't always speak for Jesus. So don't give up. Keep coming here. And I thank you for doing so. Would you stand up? I just want to pray for you. And then I want to invite our prayer teams. One of the things we've been doing is we've just been praying for each other. And so I want to invite our prayer teams um, to just be around the room. And if you're here, you're alone, some of these big issues, would you let us help and pray? And then look at me. <laughs> Next week, we, we get into some really, really important stuff. And so, uh, not that this hasn't been, but this has been set up for what we'll be doing the next three weeks. And then we're going to have a big old healing service after that. If you're feeling beat up, if you're feeling a failure, if you're feeling hopeless, do not allow those feelings uh, to rob you from the journey to come. There's much more to be said. So, Father, only you see the truth of our hearts. Only you are not shocked or surprised by what's really going on. And my prayer, very simply for my brothers and sisters, is we would be a community where it's safe to come out of hiding. Where the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus would be spoken and embodied. And where people would come 
to reconsider the ways that they live in light of the fact that Jesus is real and he is at work and his kingdom is breaking in. And so, Father, I pray for all of those hurting tonight. Would you speak a word of hope and comfort to them? All of those in outright rebellion, would you speak a word of truth and the reminder that it's okay to be in process, but God calls us out of darkness into light. And God, would you speak words that remind us how good it is to be yours. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Go in grace, brothers and sisters. Thanks for coming tonight. Bless you.